Welcome to the symposium. Today we're joined by Bo and Josh, and we're going to talk about one of the Theban clays of Sophocles. We're going to talk about Oedipus Rex. Now that's an interesting topic as far as I'm concerned, and a lot of people wouldn't expect it. I've certainly had some people telling me that I wouldn't expect this to be a topic for a symposium, but I think that it is uniquely appropriate because um, there is so much into this play and I really think that it's a, it's a good ground for discussion. And it has all sorts of questions like uh, fate, moral responsibility, um, sometimes the theme that we can be our own worst enemy. I, ju I just think it's going to be a super discussion. Yeah, it's really deep. It's a really complicated play. Well, the, the plot line yeah. and the themes that it discusses, discusses are really quite deep and a bit complex and ambiguous. Um, so there's loads yeah. there to talk about, I think, of course. Um, it's almost surprising how kind of complex it is in a way. Because Sophocles is writing in, what, the 5th century? Yes. The 5th century BC, that is. So, you know, a long, long time ago. Yes. <laughs> deep in antiquity. And yet, and yet the Theban plays, or Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus the King, Oedipus Rex, it's, it's much more complex than almost anything that gets made today, or is, in fact, much, much, much more complex than nearly any film that gets made today or something. So, um, yeah, there's tons to talk about, isn't there, I think? Yeah. And it has been a play that is considered to be one of the greatest uh, tragedies of all time. It, it is massively influential with respect to how drama is conducted. And also it has a weird way of spilling into psychology. It does indeed. Um, I suppose this is my cue. Um, so yes, um, I, I heard that you were talking about this and I, I suggested that I join as well because there is um, a sort of legacy following on, obviously in much more recent years in the grand sum of history, um, particularly because of Sigmund Freud and the sort of whole psychoanalysis thing of the Oedipus complex. And of course, this refers to a, a son's desire to sleep with his mother, which I think is more of a, a revealed preference of Sigmund Freud than an actual thing. I think that actually he was trying to rationalise his own perversions. And uh, <laughs> I, I think that actually the story shows that men will go to great lengths not to sleep with their mother. That's actually the, the whole point of the story. And that in using the, the story as the, the name for his theory, he's unintentionally disproved it because the, the story itself is, you know, the complete opposite of what he was using it for. Okay, we will definitely go there, but let me just say that it's, I don't think it's your only cue into the discussion because we have uh, talked about uh, moral responsibility before. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that one of the main questions here is whether Oedipus is morally responsible for what he has done. He certainly feels that he is, but that's a, a major question to be asked afterwards. And I think that it goes straight to the deepest philosophical questions when it comes to discussing what we are morally responsible for and what not. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think we should say that a lot of the tragedies were not 
original screenplays in what sense? In the sense that they were taking, they were reinterpreting something that was already part of the lore of ancient Greece. So for instance, there was a huge mythological tradition and we know that there were some mythographers, people who wrote down myths and they wrote down, they tried to codify the several myths. One of the most um, influential ones that we have now, and it's widely available, you can find it definitely on in Amazon. It's by the, the Library of Greek Mythology by Apollodorus. And uh, there's a debate whether he actually wrote it or not. Some people say it's from pseudo Apollodorus or something, but it's a very dense but good codification of ancient Greek mythology, and a lot of people who study ancient Greek mythology are using it as one of the major sources. I think uh, definitely the Homeric epics are one of the other major so sources, because especially mm -hmm. there is a, a part in the Odyssey where, uh, I, I think it's you know, 20 pages or something, where we hear a lot of the myths just spilled together. It's, so it's, it's a really interesting uh, thing to bear in mind. So there was a myth of Oedipus that Sophocles was reinterpreting into a play. And there's a, and we will talk a bit in a bit about what the myth was, but it's a really interesting thing to bear in mind that what Sophocles was doing, in a sense, could be interpreted as a political claim in Athens. So, of course, there are several dimensions, but the play was staged in the very early period of the Peloponnesian War, where there was a plague in Athens caused by the Spartans outside the Athenian walls. And uh, it's, I don't think it is a coincidence that the, that the play starts with a plague in Thebes. It was a means by which the audience was going to immediately relate to the play. And uh, let me just say about tragedy that um, tragedy became what it became in the 5th century in Athens. And the three major tragedians were, or at least whose uh, works survive till now, were Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides. And Sophocles is, is sort of um, the middle child. Aeschylus was a bit, uh, was much older. I think he was... A generation older. He was born in fifth, around 525 BC and died in 456, whereas Sophocles was born in around 497 BC and died 406. And Euripides was born around 480 and died at 406, again in the Peloponnesian War. So we should bear in mind that a lot of these tragedians, they are not actually creating a story from scratch. They are taking something from the lore that was that the audience knew already and could relate to, and they are making some interventions with the play. Mm. And I think that the play was uh, not cancelled. The plays were not cancelled even during the play. So it was the COVID of the time. Mm. They, they didn't cancel the, the theatre and drama. So I think we should talk a bit about the myth of the Sphinx and the myth of Oedipus. Would it be worthwhile talking just a little bit about 
the role of tragedy and its yes, purpose yeah. before we get onto that, just because I think there are some interesting things to say about yeah. it, because um, I find it interesting in particular that tragedies um, carry the same sort of weight um, in people's minds as some of the other sort of genres of, of play. And I find that interesting because the sort of initial superficial analysis that you could do um, of, of people's attitudes towards it might say, well, tragedies deal with lots of negative emotions. Generally speaking, people prefer positive emotions. So what's going on here? What what um, is the motivation of the people writing it and the people who are interested in it? Because, of course, it's fair to say they did quite well, right? And so there's got to be an appetite there. And I think it's interesting. I didn't know that there was actually a plague going on in Athens at, around the time that it was being performed. So it seems to me that catharsis is probably going to be a very significant aspect of it in that dealing with negative emotions in a play it's, is one of the ways in which you can flesh out your ideas around these negative things. Like um, all of the themes dealt with in the story, there are lots of different um, potential bad things that could happen to a person. And I think that perhaps that's the appeal, particularly to the audience, as well as, I think, from the perspective of someone who writes tragedy, there's a certain amount of um, morality involved yeah. in there, isn't there? It seems to me that there, is, there are moral lessons to be learnt from this tragedy. And I think that perhaps that was one of the motivations to formalise th these myths in a, a sort of play. I don't know what you, you both think about that. Yeah, um, the, 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 the plague in Athens. You haven't watched mine and Carl's History Bro video from like five years ago on the Peloponnesian War. I, I have. <laughs> really? Um, a oh, okay. very long time ago. Though, well, yeah. Thucydides uh, talks all about it, but uh, there's loads of things to say. When you do classics, even at undergrad, you have to get involved, you're sort of forced really to get involved in Greek theatre. Yeah. One way or another. Um, and you have to sort of touch on uh, Euripides, Sophocles and Aeschylus. Um, but I, I think what's interesting is Sophocles himself and his place in history. So he was very, very young around the age of uh, the Battle of Salamis in like 480. He would have been 16 or 17, 15, 16, 17 years old, something like that. Um, and he lived to be an old man. So he lived sort of perfectly through, in a way, sort of perfectly through the, the Persian Wars, or yes. that, that more famous segment of the Persian Wars, you know, that Thucydides tells us all about. And that he was even a general and or a statesman on some level and was involved in the cool. Sicilian expedition and all sorts of things. And so he wasn't just a playwright in Athens. He was a really, a really, really important person who also happened to write plays, it seems. Um, and one thing to mention in classical Athens in the age of Pericles or directly after is that um, sort of full male citizens, you were sort of obliged, or you had to attend a theatre. Now that's odd to us, isn't it? Yes. To go and see a play is just entirely up to you usually, isn't it? But um, the fact that it's sort of part of your civic duty. And as you mentioned, um, it was, it's obviously used, fairly obviously used, as a vehicle to talk about politics, politics of your day, even. Sort of very, very thinly veiled, really. Yeah. In all sorts of ways. Um, 
I think that <clears throat> you also made a good point that's worth under, underlining, really, is that that's what's left to us. We've got Euripides and Sophocles and Aeschylus. It's what left to us. And only a portion of that. So they think, the real scholars think that Sophocles might have written 120, 130 odd plays. And we've got yeah. like, what, six or seven? I think we have r close to seven that are uh, complete. Extant, yeah. And we've got um, tiny snippets or snippets of loads yeah. of others, dozens of others. Yeah. Um, but sort of the three famous ones, because Oedipus Tyrannus is part of a trilogy and he didn't write them in chronological order. Yeah. <clears throat> Uh, but there's uh, Oedipus, Colonus, right? And then Antigone. Yeah. And Antigone's his daughter. We probably won't talk about that much in this one. Um, but yeah, the last thing I'll quickly say, just as a very, very, very quick uh, whirlwind few words about ancient Greek tragedy is, uh, of course, Aristotle, quite a lot later, wrote his Poetics, which took in all about, well, all sorts of things, but... Uh, among among them is sort of the nature of theatre and tragedy and what should be. And he's just a massive fanboy yeah. of Oedipus Tyrannus and Sophocles and thinks it's sort of the perfect story or the perfect tragedy at least. Um, uh, but you can see that various plot devices and things are, have, are still used to this day yeah. that, that Sophocles used in this. So... Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to get into it. And there's loads more psychology stuff to talk about than merely the Oedipus complex, which, yeah, I, I feel like Freud, he should have called it the anti-Oedipus complex or something. Um, yeah, it's the opposite. But anyway, <laughs> we'll get into that when it comes up. So I think you mm -hmm. are raising two really interesting questions. The one is the psychological one of why do we sort of feel drawn sometimes from plays that deal with negative emotions? And there are a lot of other stuff with respect to what was tragedy and who was Sophocles in ancient Athens. Because I think that when we are looking at the history of the time, we are becoming aware of several contextual factors that allow us to understand much better some plays and what the playwright, the, the, their author meant to convey. So... When it comes to the emotions, I never thought of myself as someone who would enjoy tragedy. I mean, I, I, it's not that it's an issue of enjoyment, but it seems to me that it is a bit enchanting. But consciously speaking, I would, I sort of didn't see the appeal to it until I read it. And when I read it, I, it has a mysterious enchanting quality about it. And I don't know exactly why that is. But I kind of want to, I kind of respect it. And I think that it has a lot of things to say about the human condition. I think that in, in it being a tragedy, it is also making comments on human desires, isn't it? Because, of course, everything go, if everything is going wrong to a certain extent, then there has to be a vision of what things going right looks like. You've, that's kind of a subtext of it. In, in a certain sense, that the audience has to understand what the ideal situation would be. And so it, it forces the, the audience to grapple with negative and positive emotions and, and visions of their own future in a, a certain extent. So those are actually very important things. So it, it serves an important function, even though um, superficially, sort of at, 
and uh, at face value you might say, well, why would someone want to engage in something which doesn't have a happy ending? It's going to make you feel bad, but it doesn't necessarily do that. I think this also ties into why some people are drawn to horror films. And I've heard I also didn't like them, but after a while I've, I've started loving them. And I think that I heard somewhere that when we are looking at horror films, we are much more able to process negative emotions and emotions of terror by separating ourselves from what we are looking at. It's not that we are in a context where we are uh, sort of immediately in danger. We do feel present, but there is something that gives us sort of the time to ponder on it in ways that we don't have when we're actually threatened. I think people definitely are drawn to negative things, horrible, ugly things, yeah. 100%. Yeah. Not just in art, something that, uh, you know, a piece of oil on canvas, which is ugly. Not just that, but like, you know, TV shows about how terrible it is to be in prison or something. Or the plight of a morbidly obese person. Yeah. Or just in real life, an actual car crash. People slow down to make sure they can see it. People love all that sort of thing. So the idea a... that... Oh, sorry. As I say, so the idea that a tragedy is something that ends badly, that doesn't make you feel good about yourself or the world. Um, there's still a massive audience for that. In fact, making content here, unfortunately, we realise that even though some people love a white pill, uh, the vast majority of people prefer a black pill. That's just the numbers that seem to seem to play that out. Often so, contradict the what some people say that stop with the black pills and give us white pills. Some yeah. people really like white pills. Ask for white pills. They're in the minority. It's, it's sad to say, I was a bit disappointed in the broadest sense with humanity when we discovered that. I was like, oh no, really? But I suppose it's obvious, in a way, the giant appeal of horror films or even gore mm. films, over-the-top gore films. People lap it up. There's a lot to be said here on the sort of psychological realm. I think uh, what, what you're saying, Bo, brings to mind prospect theory that... Um, prospective losses are twice as emotionally significant as um, equivalent gains. And, and basically what that means is if you you stand to lose, I don't know, five pounds, uh, or you stand to gain five pounds, losing the five is twice as bad as gaining the five. And, and so losses play a disproportionate um, amount of significance in our own minds. I think also people have a morbid curiosity, and I think it is curiosity a lot of the time because these these things that people are curious about the the negative things, you know, car crashes and things like that. You're you're only really interested if you haven't had first-hand experience of it. If you've had a car crash yourself, all of a sudden, uh, a car crash of someone else seems a little bit less novel and interesting. Um, not to say that, you know, they're not necessarily going to be invested, but certainly less so than someone who's never seen one before and the novelty is still there. And I think um, to harken back to what you were saying, Stelios, I think the, the degree of separation is very important because if you're looking at it at a sort of neurological level, you sort of have this core concept, this sort of cognitive schema, if you will, in which things are built out upon. You can almost imagine the neural networks um, building around this main neural pathway. 
And it's significant because the diffusion then removes the negative emotion to a certain extent. Because, of course, when you're watching a play, you won't feel nearly as negative as if you were in the same scenario yourself. Yeah. And actually that, that degree of removal from the situation helps people build um, sort of psychological yeah. structures in their mind that allow, allows them to think about these issues if they're confronted with comparable ones in real life in a way that is perhaps less emotionally straining and therefore they're going to make a perhaps more rational and better decision out of it as well. And I think people have a, an intuitive sense of this. Yeah. You're not necessarily consciously aware of it um, going on, but people can they kind of have a feeling going away from something that, that tells them that they've gone away with a little bit more knowledge about a certain negative thing. And this curiosity is really central to Oedipus Rex because it is his curiosity to find out about himself in a way mm. that leads him to understand the tragic truth. Mm -hmm. And before we talk a bit about the myth of Oedipus, I want to say something about Sophocles that uh, I think may be relevant. He was, I think, involved in a s sort of coup against uh, Ephialtes. And Ephialtes is not the Ephialtes who betrayed the, the Spartans. He was the Ephialtes in Athens. He was a populist democrat. And Later? I, yes. Long yeah, after? I, I think in 450. Thermopylae? Yeah. Right. Long after. Long, yeah, long yeah, after. Yeah, right. he, that, uh, these are two different Ephialtes. Mm. And um, he was considered to be a bit more Spartan-friendly, I think. And um, to a degree, a lot of commentators have said that Oedipus, for him, represents something like the spirit of Athenian democracy or the spirit of Pericles. So okay. in, the, in Thucydides, for instance, there is the funeral oration where Pericles is talking about the spirit of Athenians that is very extroverted. And uh, he was basically saying that it's the best system and they're basically the best. That was sort of like Athenian exceptionalism of the time. And a lot of people are saying that the kind of prideful nature of Oedipus in the beginning is a direct criticism of what Sophocles considered to be the prideful nature of Athenian democracy. Or uh, of Pericles before and, the war started or something. Yes. Maybe. And uh, in a way, a lot of people are saying that because he was a bit more Spartan-friendly and a bit more traditional, he introduced this play as a means of criticism and warning that this kind or th this kind of mentality will destroy Athens. Now, that's one interpretation. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying that it's the correct one or not. But uh, I have heard a lot of people saying this, especially in Greece, and uh, several famous scholars, at least contemporary ones. And I think it's an interesting thing to, to share. Mm. Now, let us talk a bit about the lore and where the myth of Oedipus features in it. And also bear in mind that, for instance, a lot of the tragedians were reinterpreting the lore. Let me just give an example. I think both Sophocles, Aeschylus and Euripides, they have a play called Electra. Electra is the, the daughter 
of Agamemnon and Clytemnestra. And the thing Orestes is also the her brother. Mm. And so they all reinterpreted Electra's position in the lore. Now, it's important to think of the myth of Oedipus and talk a bit about you know, the Theban cycle and the Theban myths. So Oedipus is famous for having solved, in a sense, the riddle of the Sphinx. Mm -hmm. we, we are going to give the, the myth now so you listen to it and you can judge the play better and on its merits because the people who would watch the play already knew the myth. So basically, we have King Laius and Queen Jocasta of Thebes. And they heard Apollo's priest or priestess, don't remember what it was, who told Laius that you're going to be killed by your son. And uh, because he was afraid of that prophecy, he, uh, they, they gave birth to a son. Or I, th I think it was Apollo, the, the library of Greek mythology says that uh, they tried not to have a son, but at some point they, they were drunk and they <laughs> got it on. And um, Oedipus was born. And uh, when he was three days old, Laius pierced his ankles and he gave him to Jocasta. Jocasta gave Oedipus to a shepherd and they told him to go to Mount Kitheron and let, let, it, let the baby die and be consumed by wolves or die of exposure die of exposure and yeah. the beasts there and let us say that oedipus in greek means swollen feet mm. and the feet were swollen because they were pierced by Laius. and what happened was that the shepherd was uh, pitted the the boy i think that there is a rough equivalent with the history of cyrus the great mm. that uh, the shepherd pitted him and he gave him to the to the people in Persia there. Okay. Also, there's all sorts of parallels with yeah. Sargon, yeah. with Moses, yeah. with uh, with Zeus and Knossos. That the boy, the prophecy that the boy will usurp or kill the father. Yes, there's a yeah, there's there's the same few sort of um, themes that come up in in myths, aren't there? Uh, yeah. It's very very similar all over the all over the world. I, I think. This could be interpreted as a criticism of uh, the corruption of power, because to think that a father would kill his son or let his son die of exposure because he heard a prophecy or something seems a bit seems seems a bit far fetched, at least to to people with our sensitivities. Maybe people back then didn't think so. I've always thought that a shepherd is meant to represent the sort of. Uh, pure and innocence of the, the common people in a story. That's kind of what I think of because their their instincts are sort of presented as being innately um, sort of as a guardian because they're they're guarding their sheep, aren't they? Yeah. And so it, there's a sort of very subtle subtext there that a good person who cares about other people um, protects other people perhaps even people he doesn't know very well. I mean, he's probably not um, particularly well-versed in each individual sheep, I don't know. Um, but uh, you would presume that there's a certain amount of benevolence there, right? 
I don't think you're wrong in any way. Don't think what I'm about to say. I'm trying to say you're wrong. But I just think uh, classical, the classical Peloponnese was fil filled with shepherds. Yeah. We're always told that. Like, <laughs> nearly everyone is a shepherd, almost. Not yeah. quite that, of course. But, um, yeah, but everything you said is still also true. But the idea that it's weird that you would hear a prophecy that your son is going to usurp or kill you at some point, so you kill them all. Um, well, yeah, that's, that's, crazy, that's crazy to us. Yeah. Weirdly extreme to us. But like I say, in the, in the Zeus story... Yeah. His father, I think, eats all the all the boys when they're yes. born. <laughs> um, or uh, another parallel with Romulus and Remus, where the, the, the story that kids are abandoned to die and that they don't die and they grow up and go on to do great things. That's that's a well-used yeah. trope almost, isn't it? And by yeah. the way, let me just say that when, um, that when people implied that gods were being unjust, the, uh, there were people who criticized that, like Plato, for instance. Plato thinks that uh, poets and uh, mythologists, they are insane and uh, blasphemous when they are presenting gods as acting in a puny way. And uh, I mentioned what you're I'm talking about, what uh, Cronus did, for instance, when he was devouring his children. Plato thought that this is it's completely blasphemous. You shouldn't be allowed to say things like that. Mm. To go back to Oedipus, mm. um, that shepherd there found another shepherd from Corinth and he gave it to him. And the other shepherd took him to Polybus and Merope, the king and queen of Corinth. Now, in some versions of the myth, it's not Merope the name, it's, uh, it's another name. But that's, we need to bear in mind that there were all sorts of people giving versions of that myth. So that's the one that has been registered. And... They, they loved uh, Oedipus, and uh, I think it is implied that um, they loved Oedipus because they couldn't bear children of their own, and they wanted to hide the truth from him. But at some point, Oedipus got, uh, got into a banquet, went into to a banquet, and there was a drunkard there telling him that you're not who you think you are. Your, your parents are not Polybus and Merope. To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.